Welcome to First Baptist Church. Glad you could all be with us this morning. And, and as we're getting started, I, I know he's not here, but I want to thank Matt Brocker for covering uh, for me last Sunday. And Jeff was out of town and I was out of town. And, and so it's always good to get Matt back um, every so often. And, and, and so that was, I'm appreciative of that. And, and I'm sure you are as well. Uh, we had the opportunity, uh, my family, to, to get away for a, for a much-needed vacation, so we were, that was a great time. We had a good time together, but I'm excited to be back uh, behind the pulpit today, so uh, hopefully, hopefully you're, you know, not too disappointed um, in, in that fact. But, um, but I do want you to, to take note of, of the announcements that Jeff went through, particularly Certainty Conference. Put those dates down, October 1st through the 4th. Um, and come back out. We're going to need you to be here. We're going to have a good group of out-of-town folks, and uh, so we're going to need to be hospitable, and, and uh, would love it if, if you could prioritize that in your calendar um, to come back for that. So you have all this information. We'll be talking more about it, but um, the, the theme is the next generation, and, and the evening speakers are Code Blaze and, and Lee Ridings, and the morning speakers are Brandon Briscoe and Kenny Morgan. So it's going to be a good time. It's going to be worth your while, I promise, so make that a priority. But like I said, I'm excited to be back here today behind this pulpit, continuing what we started two weeks ago, talking about the issues, some of the issues facing the church today, the wars that we are dealing with on various fronts. And we kicked the series off by talking about the war going on in our lives and in the church generally over our worldview whether we are going to view our life and, and make our decisions regarding our life and, and regarding the church um, using man's wisdom and man's logic, or if we're going to do it using God's wisdom and the Word of God. Because while sociology says that there are many valid ways to look at the world, the Bible outlines two ways. And using non-biblical vernacu biblical, uh, vernacular, it's you know, secular humanism, versus biblical Christianity. We talked about that uh, last time. And using Bible terminology, it's man's way versus God's way. And when it comes to man's way versus God's way, what you need to know is that one way is right and the other is wrong. You see, that's where the Bible differs on science. It doesn't pretend other ways are correct because they're not. So as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to live our lives through the lens of the Bible and make our life decisions accordingly, understanding who we are in Christ as believers in Jesus Christ, understanding that fact of who we are in Christ and being able to answer that first question of worldview, which is, who am I? And once you understand that, you can answer confidently that as a believer, you are created in the image of God as a son of God. And then you know how to answer the second question of worldview, which is, why am I here? And for a Christian, the answer is to bring God glory. It's a reason why we're here. We are created by him and for him. And he is to have the preeminence in our life. That's what the Bible says in Colossians 1 that we looked at last time. And the way we bring him glory is by understanding the problem in the world and, and sharing the solution. The problem we know is sin and the solution is the gospel. And as we offer that solution to others by sharing the gospel and making disciples of Jesus Christ, we are living the life of Christ and bringing him glory, which just brings it full circle and comes back to our purpose. And that's why it is so important to maintain a biblical worldview. Because without it, we cannot fulfill the purpose we have in this life. 
given to us by the Creator, by Almighty God. So, so there's a war over our worldview. And whether you know it or not, you watch that war play out every single day in our culture. And that's the next step in the natural progression of this series, because today we're going to discuss the culture war. And this gets to the practical implication of your worldview. And the culture war, it's something we hear about a lot, even in, in mainstream media, not just something you know, we hear about at church. We actually don't hear about it that much at church. We hear about it a lot in mainstream media. But here's the problem. When we hear about it in that venue, it's always presented from a political viewpoint and as a political issue. And in today's age, it plays out in private and public debates over things like feminism and abortion and transgenderism and the LGBTQ movement and BLM and all the alphabet mafia, whatever those letters are. And those are all very politicized issues. And what you need to understand right here from the beginning is all of that's just a smoke show. Because at the core, those are not issues of the right or the left, of conservative or liberal, of Republican or Democrat. In fact, they're not even the real issues. The truth is, those are just the symptoms of something much deeper. And it's not political, it's biblical. So people aren't really fighting what they think they're fighting when they're fighting this culture war, many folks at least. And when engaging in debates regarding the issues in the list that I just mentioned. Because the real issue, and I, and I put this on your outline sheet, the true culture war is simply an issue of authority. The culture war that we're fighting is an issue of authority. That's what lies deeper. You see, we think the culture war is something relatively new. That things were, were somehow better before. Some say, if, you know, if we could just get back to the 1950s, for example, that's when America was at its peak. It was wholesome. It was a great time to raise a family, and that may be true if you were white, maybe not so much if you were black. I don't know. I didn't live at that time. But it was before the drug and the sexual revolution of the 1960s that ushered in many of the problems that we're facing in society today, like feminism and abortion and LGBTQ and transgenderism which are all very real problems in our society, not, not only in society, but also for the church and for families today. We're going to talk about that more this morning and next week. But the questions I would have for someone desiring to return to a certain era of America, for, for example, uh, you know, the 1950s, if that's what you're trying to get back, the, the questions I would have for them is, is why is America your focus and and why was 1950s the peak? Or whenever you think the good old days were. Because here's, here's the problem. Wherever you go back to, there's still sin there. There's still sin there. And if you're glorifying some era, then you don't really understand the Bible. Because what you're after is something that only the Prince of Peace can restore. And that won't happen until he is on this earth, when he comes back to this earth. 
So if you're trying to get back to a certain era, you're, you're trying to usher in the millennium here and now, and that's not what God called us to do. You see, our cultural problems didn't start in the 1960s or, or any time you want to name since the birth of America. Our cultural problems, they started in the garden. So unless you go back to Genesis 2, you're not going back far enough. Because the culture war started in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 3. It's a war of authority. Make no mistake about it. You need to understand that in order to come out victorious. What we're seeing playing out in society every day, it's over who, who gets to be in charge. It's over who gets to say what I can do or what I can't do. It's an issue of authority. And if you want to fight the spirit of our age, which we should, you need to understand the level you need to be fighting on. And it's way deeper than fighting political fights. That's not our primary arena. So I want to look at what happened in the first culture war in Genesis chapter 3, because as many of us know, how Satan worked against Eve sets a pattern for how he has worked throughout history and how he continues to work today. In our culture, against the church and against believers, you know, Paul told us this, he warned us of this fact, 2 Corinthians 11, fear. he says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. In the same way, as he did it with Eve, he's continuing to do it today. So we need to understand what he did with Eve. We need to understand that attack. And we're going to learn it, obviously, from those first 15 chapters of Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles and you're not already there, I invite you to go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 3 as we begin to analyze this issue of authority. So is God in charge, or are you, or am I, or is our government? Are we going to listen to the Word of God, or are we going to listen to what our culture says? So let's read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. We'll see what God has to teach us this morning. Genesis 3, verse 1. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees in the garden. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? He said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, 
and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, when we come to you today, we need to, in need of hearing from you today. And so, Lord, I, I pray that that's exactly what happens. And I pray that, that you move me out of the side. I don't have anything valuable to say, particularly on, on, this, on this issue that we'll be talking about today. But, but, Lord, we know that you do. And so I pray that, that you do that. I pray that your word goes forth as you would have it go forth. And I pray that we see it as the authority in our life and, and not culture, not government, not ourself. But we'll, we'll maintain a biblical worldview to view our life through the lens of your word and then allow that to dictate um, you know, how we should live and, 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 and what culture is telling us. And so, Lord, I pray that everything that is said today is true to your word. I pray that you're honored and glorified through this entire service, through our fellowship together, through our worship of you, and then certainly as we, as we look in the pages of your word this morning. But, but, Lord, use it in our life to change us and mold us more and more into your image. We love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this story that I just read, it's, it's obviously one that most people in here are quite familiar with. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you know about Adam and Eve. You know about what happened, this catastrophic event that, that, that we just read. We talked about it somewhat last time when we were answering the question of what is wrong with the world, and by extension, what is wrong with me, and the third question of worldview, and the answer to that is sin. And the passage that we just read is where sin entered into the world as we know it. And the sin, at its core, is an attack on the authority of God. And in this passage, enemies are established. So the first enemies in the Bible. So, so this is where the culture war began. And we saw that in the last verse we read, verse 15. Speaking to Satan, God said, and I will put enmity. This is the first mention of enemy or any variation of that word. The first mention of that. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And what we saw last time when we were talking about worldview is that we are at risk of falling onto the wrong side of this war. Because James 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. All right, so we have the first mention of enmity in Genesis 3.15. It's between the serpent and the seed. Right? And, and, and now we're saying we can be enemies with God if we make friends with the world. You see, friendship with the world means you are siding with the serpent, with Satan. Because he uses this world and its culture to attack us. So the culture war can really be described as the seed versus the serpent. I'll put that on your outline sheet. As the seed versus the serpent. And since it's a seed versus the serpent... It's no coincidence that the very next chapter in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4, we have the first recorded murder in the Bible when Cain killed Abel. And it's a murder of the seed of the woman by the seed of Satan. And you say, hold on, weren't, weren't they both the seed of the woman? Well, yes, but a seed can come from different lines. And 1 John 3.12 says, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. And slew his brother. 
And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. righteous. You see, since John says Cain was of that wicked one, then so do I. But we see the culture war, the seed versus the serpent, play out throughout the rest of the Bible. The very next book in the book of Exodus, how does it start? Exodus 1, verses 15 and 16. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Sifra and the name of the other Pua. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. So what, what is this? What's happening here? It's a war between the serpent and the seed. Kill the promised seed, which is a male heir, by the way. That's why the daughters could live. And the pictures are all throughout. Pharaoh wanted to kill the boys so that no Moses could grow up amongst them. With Pharaoh being a picture of Satan and Moses being a picture of Christ. And then all throughout the Old Testament, what was recorded as the largest abomination the nation of Israel undertook as they followed pagan gods again and again and again was the sacrificing of their own children. The serpent versus the seed. Deuteronomy 12, verse 31 says, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods, for even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. And then in Jeremiah 32, and verse 35, it says, And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. The fire of sacrifice unto Molech, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind and they should, that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And then in, in the literal attempt to kill Jesus, not just in picture like it was in, in Exodus and throughout the Old Testament, we have Herod in Matthew chapter 2, look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. You see, he was trying to kill Jesus. And Satan has always and is still trying to break the seed line. You see, his first goal was to defeat Christ. But even after that plan failed, he still has the same goal in mind. And he's trying to stop the seed with us, with you and me. So in the Old Testament, those verses we read, it was all physical, right? He's trying to break the seed line. He's trying to stop Christ from even being born. And then after he was born, he was trying to kill him before he was able to go up and be crucified and, and, and raise, rise again for our sins. He was trying to physically kill him because all of the Old Testament is more kingdom of heaven based, more physical based. But even when that plan didn't work... He didn't stop. Just now is spiritual. Why? Because the New Testament, it's, it's kingdom of God focused. Kingdom of God is in us. So what's Satan trying to do now? He's trying to stop the seed. The, the spiritual seed that we have in us, that we are to pass along to everybody else, he's trying to stop it. He's trying to kill it. He wants it to end with you. He does not want any fruit to come from your life or mine. He doesn't want any Christian passing down the seed of Christ. 
And it's what the culture war is all about. It's a seed versus a serpent. Is Satan, in, in all he sets up to stop the seed of Christ from being passed down, are we going to allow that to happen? Because when we do that, when we, when we pass the seed down and we bring fruit, bear fruit, that brings God's glory, right? That's what we talked about last time. That's our purpose, to share the solution, to make disciples. That is why, and, and that is what Satan wants to steal, that's why it's a culture war. It's his way of getting the glory that God deserves. If he can stop the seed, then he gets glory. And he can only receive that through the world, and that's why he sets up culture. Or he can get it in our life if we allow the culture of this world to overly influence our lives. And he stops the seed with us because we're just caught up in the culture of this, the, the culture of this world. And then he gets the glory through that. It's the seed versus the serpent. But you have to see how that old serpent works. Because you can't win this culture war until you understand the enemy's tactics. Paul said that is how he gains an advantage. It shouldn't be this way. But if we don't understand his do, the way he works, then he's going to gain advantage. 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. And, and Paul says that assuming that we understand the Bible and we understand how Satan works. But unfortunately, many of us don't. And when we don't, he's able to get an advantage. So we need to go back to Genesis 3 now and, and break this down. And this finally brings us to our first point this morning. And this is how we understand culture and we understand how that serpent works. And our first point that we need to understand is the subtlety of culture. We see that subtlety in Satan's first attack. Again, the first mention sets a pattern. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 11.3 that we read earlier. As a serpent beguiled Eve through what? His subtlety. And then later in the same chapter, in verse 14, Paul goes on to say, And, and no marvel. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So what we need to understand when it comes to culture today is that Satan's attack is, is, is very subtle and it's more targeted to the mind than the body. Right? That was the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, that your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. So that, that is Satan's goal. Through his subtlety as he works through culture, he's targeting your mind to get you to think in a way that goes against what the Bible says about what's happening in culture and what's going on in culture. And so that was Paul's warning for us. And I know that he doesn't exclusively attack this way. I understand the other verses in Scripture, and I understand 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And certainly Satan attacks that way, but, but, but I want you to think about that. In that context, how does a lion, how does a, what's a lion attack? A lion, they attack an individual, right? They target the weakest animal, whatever, in the group. And then they go kill an individual. That's how a lion attacks. But, but when Satan wants to attack a church, or he wants to attack a group, he's not going to necessarily target, the, the lion targets the individual. 
But he t targets the group as an angel of light through subtlety. And, and I know lions are ravenous. They use roaring and fear to their advantage. But that's not, for the most part, what we have seen in our culture to date, especially for us. He is subtle today. And listen to this next statement. And listen and write, because I put it on your outline sheet. Through his subtlety, Satan doesn't need us to come fully over to his side. He just needs us to move off the Bible a little bit. It's subtle. He just needs us to move off the Like, do you really want to hold to everything that book says? Like, can you, can you compromise here just a little bit? He's just trying to pull us a little bit towards the middle. But what we have to understand is that anytime we are moving to the middle and compromise, we are moving away from the authority of the Bible in our life. And that pattern, moving away from authority, that we see in Genesis chapter 3, is the same pattern that we see in our culture today. And we see it in the church today. It, God has an established authority structure, but, but we want a bucket. And we want to think that we're smarter. And we want to think that, that our way is the right way. And that's what he did with Eve. And you need to get this. This is how Satan attacked then, and it is how he is attacking now. And it's through a complete reversal of the order of authority that God has established. God's established authority in the church. God's established authority in the home. God's established authority in government. God's established authority in the church everywhere. And, 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 and what culture wants to do is flip it and reverse the order it's an attack on authority. And the order in the garden, it starts with Eve having dominion over the serpent. But that got flipped. The serpent, even one possessed by the devil, had no authority over Eve to make her do anything. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image. Man is Adam and Eve. And we know that after our likeness because it says, And let them, Adam and Eve, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. That was the order of authority. Eve was, a, was an authority over the serpent, but Satan turned it around. And listen, it's no wonder our culture is obsessed with animals. And they're considered part of the family. And listen, that is not a statement on pets. I own two of them. I have two dogs that live inside my house. And I like them part of the time. And if they weren't there, I would experience minutes of sadness. But, but there is something that's sort of messed up and upside down in a culture where, listen to me, in many ways, animals are more protected than children. That is demonic. And you have to understand that. But the role reversals don't stop there, because not only did Eve have authority over the serpent, but Adam had authority over Eve. But the serpent didn't go to Adam, and Adam let him. He went to Eve. And listen, this is not a, a male chauvinist justification. We've talked about this topic at length in past sermons. The woman is absolutely equal to the man in worth and value to God. She is just different in role. She is under his headship. This is an issue of authority, not intelligence or anything else. 
And this isn't the main point of the message today, but this is biblical and you need to understand it. Even Paul said, 1 Corinthians eleven three. but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And when Satan came to Eve, he absolutely knew what he was doing. Because according to God, the order of the three parties involved, the order of authority was Adam, then Eve, then the serpent. But how it played out in that scenario was exactly the opposite. It was the serpent, and then Eve, and then Adam. And man, do we see that order flipped in culture today as well. Because not only are we at the mercy of our pets sometimes, Satan has done a masterful job of flipping the order in homes and in marriages and churches and everywhere. In many families, for example, if their lives don't center around their pets, they center around their children. And the truth be told, in all practical purposes, the children hold the authority in the family as it relates to schedules, as it relates to purpose, as it relates to financial investment. But not only that, many mothers and wives are leading the home and leading the marriage against God's design, and for many of them, it's not even their fault, because if they didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. So this is more of an indictment on the men than it is the women. Adam was there. That's what verse Genesis 3, 6 said. And she turned and gave the, the, the fruit to Adam, who was with her. And he was just falling asleep on the job. But, but, but listen, ladies, when you do that, you're still falling right into Satan's trap. And you're losing the culture war because it is a war of authority. Who is your authority? And are you viewing authority the way God asked you to view them or view it? Because listen, Satan has used culture to very subtly infect our homes and our churches. He already has the world. That's his. We know that. But he's using the world to infiltrate the church. And what we see in society as a whole and, and maybe to a lesser extent in the church, but certainly still some, is that the husband and the father, they're not even around. And they've left, and they were man enough to father a child, but not man enough to raise a child. But do you know what the number one cause of poverty is, for example, in America? It's fatherlessness. You know what the number one indicator of someone going to jail is? It's fatherlessness. You know what the number one indicator of someone dropping out of school is? It's fatherlessness. And there's so many spiritual pictures to that physical reality. And for many Christian fathers, maybe they're even physically present in the home, but they don't participate in the home. So the spiritual results are just as devastating. And we see that play out both physically in society and spiritually in the church and families. And it looks like radical egalitarianism or, or feminism with a Christian dress on as complementarianism is dis dismissed. And, and we have to be careful of this because, remember, Satan is subtle. Because if we don't understand this issue as it relates to the ch church, we run the risk of raising masculinized girls and feminized boys against God's order and authority. And it's led, certainly, to what is you know, called gender confusion in our society, which is a misnomer, by the way, because nouns have genders, masculine, feminine, neutered, but humans have sexes. 
So we shouldn't even give that ground, but that's another issue. But that is what we see going on in society today, and even creeping into the church. And I want to attempt to, to prove this to you by asking you a question. And I'm going to warn you, it, you might not love the question. And I'll, I say that because I don't actually love the question. I get a little bit angry at myself when I ask it. But, I, but we should face this, and, and please hear it from the spirit in which it comes. Because I believe this will show at least some level how far culture has crept into the church. And this is really a, a question for all of you with daughters. I myself am a father of a daughter. And the question is, what do you want your daughter to be? Like if she's young and when she grows up, what, when she graduates high school, what do you want her to do? What do you want her to pursue? But, but the test is this. If, if, the answer, if, the, your, if your daughter's answer is, I want to be a stay-at-home wife and mother, is, is that okay? Is that enough for you? If they say, I want to help my husband and I want to raise children, is that satisfying? Because culture would say, absolutely not. But according to the Bible, that's one of the highest callings you could seek. And please listen to me. This is in no way a statement on whether a woman should work outside the house or not. That is not prohibited in Scripture. That's a choice you get to make individually as a family, and it's okay if you decide to. That's not, that's not a statement on that at all. I'm not doing that. But if in your mind, being a stay-at-home wife and mother is in some way inferior to other options, then culture has infected you at some level. So don't fall for it. And don't fall for the materialism in our culture that says you have to have two incomes to keep up with the Joneses. Again, I don't care if you have two incomes. Truly, honestly, I, I don't at all. That is not a statement on this at all. It's fine. But it gets to your motive and your reasoning behind it. And it's very subtle. So you need to be aware. And remember, like I said earlier, this, this does not go back to the 1960s. This goes back to Genesis 3. Because the issue is authority. I mean, these are all just symptoms that, Kate, that Satan has kept in storage until the 1960s. I mean, it was something else before then. Like, if you just take the, you know, I'm just making this up, but take the 1930s, for example. Then culture celebrated women staying at home, but they didn't necessarily treat them the best. And that doesn't mean there was no attack. There certainly was. It was just different. Culture is always changing because Satan is always working. And he knows what works best for a given time period. So understand that and understand the subtlety. That's us first. That's where we got to start. But then second, you also need to understand the strategy. You need to understand the strategy of our culture. And I'll just tell you right here from the beginning, and many of you know this. This is, this is not brain surgery that we're doing this morning. This is, this is stuff that many of you have been through many times before. But the strategy is an attack on the authority of God's word. That's what it is. It is an attack on the authority of God's word. And watch this play out in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. 
For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. The very first recorded words out of the mouth of Satan through the serpent was, Yea, hath God said. Did God really say that? He questioned the word of God. He put the doubt into Eve's mind, not only about what God said, but also about his motive behind it. And he did that so that it would lead to unbelief. So the first attack was an attack on the authority of the word of God. And I want you to see the details of, of how this played out, because, because here is, here's the question. Did God really say, you can't eat of every tree of the garden? And when Adam quotes back the instructions that God had given to Adam, by the way, she starts out by taking away from the word of God. Because in Genesis 3-2, she says, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God, but look at God's actual words in Genesis 2.16. This, this is what God said. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. And I don't know if you caught it, but Eve left out the word freely in her account. And in that, we actually have the very beginning of another gospel. Because Romans 5 tells us that God's gift of eternal life is absolutely free. So Eve takes away from God's word. And then in Genesis 3, 3, she adds to God's word. She says, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest he die. But again, look at what God actually said. Many of you know this. Genesis 2, 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Eve said that you couldn't even touch it. And God never said that. She added to his words. So she took away from his words. And she added to his words. And in doing both of those, she was beguiled, which led to her and her husband being unfaithful and to the cultural mess that we have today. Because it took the simplicity and the beauty that, that she and Adam had in the garden in a perfect environment, God's perfect creation. And it complicated everything. Because look at, at where we're at now. Look at the results of losing that authority structure that God established. We go from a creation in perfect fellowship with his creator to now having to work and toil to death and homicides and suicides and drug addiction and abortion and same-sex marriage. And what is the fruit of all of that? It's despair and hopelessness. That is what our culture offers. Despair and hopelessness. You see, you don't miss the real culture war. It's the authority of God's word. But the shame is that is exactly what the church is missing. They don't see it overall. Like I've said multiple times, everything that is being talked about today in culture, those are the symptoms, the, the fruit of the real issue, the root, the real strategy behind everything you see going on in culture today. Everything you see, this is a strategy. It is to tear at the foundation of God's word. Because our enemy knows the Bible, and he knows that Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
And that's what he's working at. He is trying to tear apart and bring doubt into our minds at what is the only foundation that our faith is built upon. Is the word of God, the living word and the written word. 1 Corinthians 3.11, for other foundation can no man lay than is laid, than is laid which is Jesus Christ. Jesus as the word is our foundation. So if the authority of the word can be brought into question, then relativism that we talked about last time, it reigns. And that is why, listen, understand, this, there, this is not, there's no coincidence here. That is why there is such an attack in academia and evangelicalism on the authenticity of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis in particular. Not only that, but, but certainly that. And even quote-unquote Christian pastors and leaders like Andy Stanley and others say that we really shouldn't expect anyone to believe the creation account occurred in six literal days, or that a talking serpent beguiled Eve, or that there was a worldwide flood that killed everyone except the eight people in Noah's family that made it onto the ark, and that man really could make an ark that would survive that. Even these Christian quote-unquote, Christian pastors, they say science disproves all of that. Science disproves the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And it's ludicrous to believe. But here's what they'll say, but we don't have to. It doesn't matter. All that matters is Jesus. Only the gospel matters. We just have to trust in Jesus. And of course we want everyone to trust in Jesus. That's not the question. The problem is, is that when you take the view that Genesis, for example, can't be trusted, you've moved to the middle, away from the Bible, and towards evolution, towards atheism, and towards a secular humanist worldview. Because what is the life of Jesus and, and what we believe regarding the gospel of Jesus? What is it based upon? It's based on the Word of God. So listen. If you lose the first 11 chapters of the Bible, then you lose the rest. If part of it is not trustworthy, then none of it is trustworthy. Why should anyone believe in Jesus if all of the Bible isn't true? Listen, if all of the Bible isn't true, then you shouldn't believe in Jesus. But it is. And there is evidence to that. And it's also a matter of faith. Do you believe? Because culture wants to seed unbelief in everything it's doing, in all of these issues that are the symptoms. The goal is to seed unbelief. That love is love. How can you say who I love? And, and that I was born that way. It's just trying to, to create doubt in the truth of what God's word says. That is the goal. It's actively attacking the authority and then sufficiency, but that's a different issue. The, uh, the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. That's how Satan is attacking. Because once that authority is gone, other worldviews, they make sense. They make sense in your mind. And once sufficiency is gone, you need other avenues for help. The Bible's not enough. But listen, there's an answer to this. You don't have to fall for the tricks of the enemy. And that brings us to our third and final point, the solution to our culture. And listen, the solution is quite simple. Again, this is a very easy sermon. If the attack is on the authority of God's word, then the solution is to trust and obey God's word. 
just do that. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. And I say this is the solution because what you see in Genesis 3 after the serpent left Eve was God providing the answer and the next steps through his word. And it goes from verse 8 actually all the way down through the end of the chapter. But look at verses 8 and 9. What did they hear immediately? And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And that's just a great verse. We don't have time to even break down. But they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and he said, where art thou? I heard the voice of the Lord walking. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was manifested in a voice. Because that is what God wants us to have and to hold. They're his words. Because, and I put this on your outline sheet. Because his words bring his presence. His words bring his presence. And what is the word of God doing? He is seeking out his creature. And he asks, where art thou? Like he didn't know. He obviously knew the answer, and this whole passage, like, we don't have time to break it down. This whole passage is funny. And, you know, that Adam and Eve go hiding amongst the trees. Like, like they're, you know, like I can just picture it. Like, this is a pretty big tree. Let's get behind this, and he won't see us. Like, you know, I mean, you know, when you sin, it messes with your mind, man. You start thinking some weird things. And, but he's God. He knew exactly where they were, but he asked for their sake. And you need to see that. God cared enough to go seek them out even in their sin. And that was necessary because as Romans 3.11 says, there's none that understandeth, there's none that seeketh after God. Ezekiel 34.11 says, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. That's what he does. See, God seeks us out and draws us to him, and then, and then we have a free will choice on whether we are going to follow him or not. That was the case in the garden, and it is the case with us as well. But what it takes is owning up responsibility. What do you see, and, and, and again, we got to kind of breeze through this, but what do you see Adam and Eve doing immediately when, when God confronts them? They, they're shifting the blame. Adam said, listen, this is that woman you gave me. Uh, you gave her to me, I, you know. <laughs> and then Eve says, well, that serpent beguiled me. So they're just blame shifting. Well, what's our culture do? They just, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3. There's no personal responsibility. It's not my fault. It wasn't my choice. I, I had to do it. I was born that way. It's whatever. Name, name your issue. I don't have personal responsibility for my sin. No, you've got to trust what God's word says and you have to obey it. That includes owning up to our sin and our responsibility in it. And, and the question that he asked, you need to hear this morning. The question was, where art thou? And like I said, he obviously knew where they were, both physically and spiritually. But he wanted, to, he wanted them to ask themselves that question. So they knew where they were spiritually after their sin. The question really was, where are you in the sight of God? And that question still applies to us today as we fight this culture war regarding the authority of God's word. Where are you in all of it? Because Adam's answer in verse 10 was that he was afraid, he was naked, and he hid. 
And he, Adam, and he said, I heard the vo thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And we don't even have time to get in to talk about, you know, again, that what, when God asked him, how did you know you were naked? But listen, that's the answer, unfortunately, of most believers today with regard to this cultural war. They're afraid and they're naked and they hide. And they're afraid because they have a fear of man over the fear of God. Even though Proverbs 29 and 25 instructs us that the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And that fear of man certainly brings a snare because it gets you to question the truth of God's word. And the fear of man is usually present because Christians are naked in front of the world. But why was Adam afraid? He was afraid because he knew that he was naked now. Well, that's Christians are naked in front of the world because they've not spent time in God's word to be clothed with his armor, to be clothed with Christ. As Ephesians 6.11 commands us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. See, without that armor, you won't be able to stand. Why do you put it on? That ye may be able to stand. So the opposite of that is true as well. If you don't put it on, you won't be able to stand. And you'll fall for the wiles of the devil and you'll lose the culture war because what is the result of fear and nakedness? You just go hide. And you don't engage. And men don't lead their families from a position of spiritual authority. They just go hide on the sidelines. And like I told you two weeks ago, sitting on the sidelines equals losing. We must be engaged in this fight. But it must be the right fight. And the right fight is standing on and for the authority of God's word and how it pertains to all of the issues that our culture throws at us to combat the authority of God's word. And listen, I get who I am talking to this morning. For the most part, I'm, I'm talking to the home crowd. And when I mention, you know, standing on and for the authority of God's word, most people agree with me on that front. And even when I talk about a biblical worldview related to the cultural issues of the day, like feminism and abortion and LGBTQ and transgenderism, you know, most of us in here probably agree on all those points. But before we walk away and give each other high fives on how we're all on the right side of this battle, let me remind you of our first point this morning, and that is the subtlety of our culture. Because while most of us in here would not subscribe to the full feminist movement of our culture, there are still some that resent the fact that God set up the family structure the way he did. And somehow think that they know better than God the way things should be run. And are very careful to not make definitive statements on the issue like Paul did in the word of God, in scripture. Like God did himself through Moses in scripture. And so we'll justify a lifestyle that is contrary to the word of God because of those inner beliefs and doubts on the authority of God's word and his motive behind it. We have to be careful. Our enemy is subtle. And there are others of us who are saddened by the abortion epidemic of our country and believe it is murder and that life begins at conception and are horrified at the verses in the Old Testament where Israel succumbed to the pagan worship and literally sacrificed their children to pagan gods. And yet, we are more than willing to sacrifice our children on the altar of popularity 
and education, sports, scholarships, and give them over to the world to do with them as it will. You see, our, our enemy is subtle, isn't he? And most of us probably see to eye to eye, see eye to eye with respect to the unbiblical nature of homosexuality and transgenderism, and yet, in the name of kindness and inclusivity, we raise our children, both boys and girls, to be the same. And we teach them that there's no real difference. And in doing so, we don't teach the boys to be men of God, and we don't teach the girls to be virtuous women. It's subtle. So I want you to see that we're in a war with our culture that ultimately is an attack on the authority of God's word and the place it holds in your life. And the enemy is subtle. They try to lull you to sleep. And if you're not careful, you can get to the point to where you're doubting and denying God's word and even succumbing to culture and you don't even know it. So be careful. It's a war and our enemy fights dirty. So understand the subtlety and the strategy and then employ the solution. Double down and go all in on God's word. It's the only way to win this culture war. And let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And as we're closing out this morning, I just ask you to, to ask yourself some of those hard questions and to see where you line up with what God's word says. And and you don't have to take my word for it. Do the study yourself. Figure out where you're at regarding the authority of God's word in your life. And if you're not where you should be, then why don't you move? Why don't you go back to that spot? And, and that's the thing, man. That's the great thing about God. He's always seeking us out. He just, always, he just gives us a free will to do what we want with what he's asking of us. So why don't we go back to God's word this morning and get back with him so that we can win the culture war. We know he's already won the battle, but man, if we hide and we don't engage on doubling down on believing God's word and just holding to that and not getting caught up in all the mess, the smoke show of what's going on in the political world, just hold to God's word and live our life according to that truth and live our, raise our families according to that truth. Man, we can see God glorified in our life and in this church. Let's do that. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful that you give us the answers in your word. I pray that, um, that, that we will see them and, the, and that, Lord, we'll live our life according to that. And um, where, where we struggle, Lord, that you'll reveal those areas that, of weakness in our life so that we can get them right with you and, and um, be drawn back to, to standing on and for your word in the midst of this crooked and perverse nation and world. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for, for who you are and all that you do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.